Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai, and today I'm honored to welcome Dr. Deethi Malik to Raise the Line. Dr. Malik is Chief Medical Officer for Medicaid and the Child Health Insurance Program at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She brings deep experience in healthcare innovation, federal and state health policy, clinical care, and research to her current role. Before joining CMS, she was director of the COVID-19 Response Command Center at the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. I'll be tapping into the real-world perspective on the pandemic she acquired in that post. Dr. Malik is also a clinical assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University Medical School. Thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So maybe we can just get started with kind of learning a little bit more about you, what got you started in medicine. Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm the child of Indian immigrants. Both my parents moved from India at various stages of their lives, lived in London for a period of time. And then when my mom was pregnant with me and my older sister was 18 months old, they took a vacation to Florida and decided why would we live in London when we could live in Florida? So I was born and raised there. Um, the defining moment of my childhood, when I was 12 years old, my dad was 42 going on 43. He was diagnosed with late stage three esophageal cancer that he ultimately passed away from nine months later. And I saw firsthand as a child, how hard the system was to navigate especially for families that didn't have health insurance, and this was pre-ACA. And that experience of, honestly, helplessness and frustration is what made me want to be a doctor. Um, not that it would have changed the outcome for my own family, but feeling like no family should ever have to go through that. And that if I were a doctor, I could be a better, I could understand how the system works, but also be a better advocate for people that needed an advocate. And then fast forward, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to take classes with Don Berwick and David Blumenthal and the late Paul Farmer, all of whom deeply inspired me and, and showed me this model for how to be what I lovingly call a doctor plus. So someone that engages in clinical medicine and, and sees patients, but spends a large chunk of their time really on policy and health systems improvement. And that's sort of been the, the fire in the belly ever since for me. And I'm so thankful that I still get to see patients on a regular basis and bring that to the work I do in policy and vice versa. I like that Dr. Plus um, idea. Maybe if you could just drill down on what the plus embodies and how you explain the plus part of that to folks that may not understand the words advocacy or like can't really ground that with an example. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. When, so I think about it as almost a translator role. Like you very often hear of people that are, for example, translators between the worlds of engineering and business, people that are translators between the worlds of law and technology. I think of myself and when I think of Dr. Plus, really what I mean is translating what it is like to care for people in need. And I'm a hospitalist. So I, a lot of the patients that I see are acutely ill. So translating what it means to take care of people in sickness and in health to policy decisions, to what does that mean for how we design payment? What does that mean for how we construct care teams? What does that mean for how we 
design a delivery system, either at a local level, a state level, or now in my current role at the federal level. Um, so that, that's what I mean by plus. And you know, happy to give examples of specific projects if it's helpful, but it's, I, will, I will say lovingly, um, it's a hard thing to explain at a cocktail party. Um, it's, it's a hard thing to explain at, at, at family dinners and at Thanksgiving, um, because I think the model very often when you introduce yourself as a physician is, oh, what's your specialty? Oh, you're not a cardiologist? You know, and there's like a set of follow-up questions that are often um, leave people quite confused. But I love what I do, and so I'm happy to explain it because I think it's just it's such a joy and privilege to to be able to do what I do. So maybe that would be a good segue. You know, can you talk a little bit about your role at CMS and like what you do day to day, and and also what some of your priority areas are? Like, what do you personally care a lot about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm the chief medical officer in the Center for Medicaid and Chip Services at CMS. I don't know how much listeners are familiar with the Medicaid program, but it is the single largest insurance program in the country and across Medicaid and CHIP. Now, through the pandemic, insure around 85 million people. My priorities are health equity, the social determinants of health, and advancing whole person health. So that includes work on data collection, quality measurement, how are we testing and designing new payment and care delivery models and focus areas like behavioral health and maternal health? There is no such thing as a typical day, but to the extent that there is a typical day, um, a lot of conversations around policy development as well as stakeholder engagement. So that's you know meetings like this one, meetings with colleagues at states, um, other federal agencies, um, advocacy organizations to stay connected to what the issues are and really try and translate those real world issues and problems into actual policy making or into guidance or into communications and toolkits, things that are really intended to move the needle on the areas of health equity, social determinants of health, quality, care innovation. At a very broad level, Medicaid was set up to give access to folks that don't have uh, a lot of money that are economically disadvantaged. How well would you say it's going? How well are we doing uh, through the use of Medicaid at accomplishing that goal? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think about access in two different ways. The one is access to coverage, distinct from access to care and services. So if we take that first bucket of access to coverage, we are seeing record-breaking enrollment in the Medicaid and CHIP programs. So in the most recent publicly available enrollment data, nearly, as I said, 85 million people are enrolled and get coverage through the Medicaid and CHIP programs. And for context, since February 2020, so right before or at the start of the public health emergency, um, enrollment in Medicaid and CHIP has increased by about 14 million people or about 20% in about two years. Part of that is due to congressional action that ensured that states would keep people with Medicaid enrolled for the duration of the public health emergency. And states were prohibited from disenrolling people from Medicaid for the duration of the PHE as a condition of accessing enhanced funding for their Medicaid programs. But that continuous coverage requirement extends through the end of the month in which the public health emergency ends. So whenever the public health emergency ends, 
that continuous coverage requirement will go away in that same month. And the enhanced Medicaid funding ends the quarter that the PHE ends. All of that is to say we've done a great job on access to coverage, in part because of statutory requirements from Congress. Once that continuous coverage requirement ends, states will have 12 months to initiate eligibility renewals for everybody enrolled in Medicaid and SHIP to help connect them to ongoing coverage. So, and that's that's a very active area of effort um, for the agency. So to the first part of the question, access to coverage, a lot of work underway and really historic gains in coverage through the public health emergency. On access to care and services, I think a slightly different story there. Um, we have seen quite a bit of variability, state to state, quite a bit of variability depending on the service um, in terms of access and utilization over the course of the public health emergency. Particular areas of concern are around behavioral health, decreased utilization of those services, and just folks finding it really hard to access those services. We've similarly seen, and I think well-documented in the public press, disparities, for example, in maternal health outcomes, perinatal care, and maternal mortality, maternal morbidity, all of which sort of stems from access to high-quality, equitable healthcare services and supports. And so that's, I think, where we have quite a bit of work to do and quite a bit of work underway. Um, I will take the opportunity to plug, we actually have a request for information out right now, an RFI on Medicaid.gov on access in the Medicaid and CHIP programs. Again, to really get concrete about where the issues are and what the strategies and solutions would look like using all of the levers available to CMS to help improve and strengthen access for Medicaid and CHIP beneficiaries, both access to coverage as well as access to care and services. A lot of our audience is very familiar with Medicare or Medicaid, but CHIP is less familiar to folks. Do you mind just explaining maybe a bit of the history of CHIP and, and how you think of CHIP? I mean, some people talk about CHIP as essentially being uh, Medicare for all, but for kids. So do you mind just walking through that? So CHIP is a joint federal state program in the way that Medicaid is a joint federal state program that provides healthcare coverage to low-income uninsured children with family incomes that are generally too high to qualify for Medicaid, or at least that's how the program was conceived. CHIP actually gives states a fair amount of flexibility in designing their programs. So specifically, states can determine which benefits are covered, what the actual benefit package is, and then can set the level of premiums and cost sharing for those benefits. So under CHIP, states can operate their programs in a couple different ways. So some states choose to operate their programs as an expansion of Medicaid. Elsewhere, it's a program that runs entirely separately from Medicaid or a combination of both approaches. Most states are a combination of the two where parts of the CHIP program are separate or parts of it are run as an expansion of Medicaid. Medicaid expansion CHIP programs follow Medicaid cost sharing rules, which essentially allows for limited or no cost sharing or premiums. CHIP, like Medicaid, is a major driver of health equity and disproportionately ensures Black, Latinx, and other children from communities of color. So when I think about how does the CHIP program interface with the Medicaid program and some of the other priorities we talked about, our overall priorities of coverage and access, equity, innovation, whole person health, 
apply to CHIF just as they do the Medicaid. So that's inclusive of things like integration of physical and behavioral health, making sure that kids have timely access to high quality care, um, and that we're able to measure where and how they don't have timely access to high quality care are all priorities in CHIP, just like they are in the Medicaid program. You know, your experience in North Carolina is very interesting to me because obviously you have a perspective from the state level, now the federal level. What, what have you noticed in terms of health equity? Like what advances did you see when you were in North Carolina? What uh, stories are often not told because uh, the attention is just not there. From my time in North Carolina, the two biggest things I learned about equity are the importance of data and the importance of relationships. So on the on the data front, you can't fix what you can't measure. And we learned in test initially in our testing efforts, and then later with our statewide vaccine rollout. Um, North Carolina was one of the first states in the country to mandate collection of race and ethnicity data on COVID testing. And then again, as part of the COVID vaccine management system, which allowed us to identify parts of the state down to the census tract level, actually, where we were seeing lagging testing rates or lagging vaccination rates to link that to our case rate data and then to focus our efforts on those communities. So for example, there were periods of time where we were seeing spike in cases among Latin, Latinx populations, we could look down to the census tract level to say, where are testing rates low, in particular in Black and Latinx communities or majority minority communities, and deploy state-funded testing resources to those places to actually set up testing sites outside the grocery store or in the parking lot of the church or mobile testing vans. Um, so that, as close to real-time data as we could get, allowed us to be as nimble and agile as we could in deployment of state resources for testing and then later in vaccination. On the relationship front, I will say um, one of my favorite catchphrases here is equity is a team sport. It really requires the mobilization of individuals, communities, community-based organizations, private sector organizations alongside all levels of government. The specific example I'll share there is we launched a FEMA-sponsored community vaccination center in Greensboro, North Carolina, that did thousands of vaccinations a day. Um, and what contributed to the success of that was we had faith-based organizations bringing buses of people. We had schools bringing soccer teams and sports teams. We had multi-generational households. We had um, bilingual community health workers who spoke Spanish and could navigate folks with limited English proficiency through the entire process. We publicized on like Spanish language radio, in Black-owned newspapers, in Hmong communities, Southeast Asian communities. And so all of that required partnerships, again, across the public and private sector with individuals and communities to really mobilize people around a shared goal. Do you feel like, you know, given where we are now with COVID and, and the similar mobilization, have you seen that play out over the last couple of years uh, as well? Do you mean similar mobilization for non-COVID things? Yeah, yeah. I think it depends on the specific circumstance. I think increasingly, one of the, the great learnings around relationships is that holds true in other healthcare contexts. So on the health-related social needs, for example, or social determinants of health, really having strong relationships between clinical providers 
community-based organizations and social services agencies is how you create systems of closed loop referrals. So you can screen folks for, for example, housing instability, food insecurity, intimate partner violence in a clinical setting, but then actually be able to follow up with a referral to a social services agency or a community-based organization that has resources to help that person and then close the loop back to the clinical provider to be able to follow that person's health and health outcomes as they relate to their social needs. That model um, certainly works. And I think the more we can do to encourage that model, it's already happening, but the more we can do to encourage that model, again, through care delivery systems, through payment mechanisms, through funding, through oversight activities, I think will serve us well to be able to help people in meeting health-related social needs. You know, we have a lot of students, uh, early stage career health professionals in our audience. I'm curious what advice you might give them uh, at this stage now that they've just gone through kind of a, a massive pandemic. How do they become the doctor plus you, you kind of mentioned? Yeah, I think I think about this one a lot. And I will say I have benefited many times over the years from the advice and counsel of folks that have come before me. Um, three things I'll say. One is define your why. Why do you want to be in healthcare? Why do you want to be in medicine? Why do you want to be a clinician? Whatever it is that you want to be. Um, what are you hoping to do and why? And the more introspective and focused you can be in the answers to those questions, the more I think it will sustain you over time. My experience in medical training and in now in, in a career as, quote, Dr. Plus, is there are some really hard days and you need to, I find myself needing to remind myself why I choose to do this. And having a why has sustained me on the really hard days. And, and I told you some of that. It's, um, I experienced this firsthand as an adolescent. Uh, and it sustains me to know that, I, that doing this work helps prevent hardship and pain and suffering for other people's families. The second thing I'll say is help however you can. Early in the pandemic, and I was three months postpartum or two and a half months postpartum when the world shut down, um, I reached out to one of my mentors because I felt this urge to be useful, but I wasn't sure how. And he said, you know what? Just reach out to people. Help first. You can figure out the rest and ask questions later. But just go to people that you think are doing good things and might need help and just offer help. And they'll tell you what they need. And that was eye-opening to me because there really are a million different ways to serve in this moment, whether it's in a pandemic or in sort of the post-pandemic world. So I, I'd encourage you to dive in somewhere, honestly, really anywhere, whether it's in your community, whether it's in a local healthcare facility, even within your own family being a caretaker, if that's meaningful and impactful to you, right? Um, and you'll kind of figure it out as you go. But I have found there's a real joy and satisfaction that comes just from knowing that you can look in the eyes of the person that you're helping. Is a joy of being a physician in my mind, but there's, a, there's countless other ways to tap into that joy of helping another person. I think that idea of kind of, uh, sometimes there's analysis uh, paralysis, like where you're just like, no, I'm not sure what to do. And then you do nothing. Uh, but I think, you know, jump, just jumping in is, is great advice. Thanks. And the last thing I'll say, that's been helpful to me in, in navigating a variety of career transitions, even early in my career, was to build a council of advisors um, 
for every twist and turn that I've had in my time in medicine, I've turned to a set of five to seven people who I trust and respect for their guidance. We keep in touch, we collaborate wherever possible, and that's helped me a lot over the years. I also try to be that advisor or sounding board to others to pay it forward because you don't have to go through this journey alone. You know, in the same way that you can be of service and offer help to others, don't be afraid to ask others for help and build that council of folks that can guide you and mentor you along the way. I think that's probably a good place to end on. I sincerely appreciate your your insight and you know your approach to this. I think it's very measured and your story is just remarkable. I, I think it's great. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.